We are beginning a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and I thought it might be a good time for me just to explain a little bit about how I choose what passages of Scripture we're going to work our way through. Some of you may remember that last year we finished up the Gospel of John right about the time of Easter, and then over the summer we worked our way through the Epistle to the Hebrews, and then in the fall we spent a decent amount of time in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And that pattern is a pattern that I've had in my preaching for about 20 years or so, that I try to tackle a gospel in the spring, late winter, early spring, up through Easter. I sometimes use those weeks immediately after Easter for a short topical series of something that might be useful for the church to tackle. Then in the summer, I often turn our attention to a New Testament epistle, And then in the fall, we look at something from the Old Testament, and for several years, we were in the book of Genesis, you remember. There's a couple reasons why I do that. Uh, If we had been in an earlier age of Christian practice, uh, we would be used to coming here both Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And on Sunday morning, we would preach through one testament, and on Sunday evening, we would preach through a different testament. And so you would have a balanced diet of both Old and New Testament preaching. Since that isn't our practice and isn't the practice of many churches anymore, it helps us to make sure that we get a wide variety of Scripture by cutting up the year in a little bit uh, of a way that I've just described here. Uh, Honestly, it also helps me as a preacher, uh, because that way I don't get bored saying the same thing over and over again. And so that's why we're looking at the Gospel of John, or Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, Mark is interesting because there are a lot of short snippets in Mark, and if you try to tackle too many of them, you're not going to be able to say much about any of it. So even though it's a short 16-chapter book, it's the shortest gospel of them all, I do expect that it will take us several years, several cycles of January through Easter to make our way through the Gospel of Mark. I anticipate that we'll probably only make it through the end of chapter 2 in this particular cycle. Why do we turn to Mark? Well, here's my hope. Here's my goal for all of us, not just for the whole series, but particularly for this morning. I want Mark to remind us of three things. The identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the meaning of Jesus. The identity, the mission, and the meaning of Jesus. I think this is helpful for those who have never come into contact with Jesus, and so one of my encouragements to you is, especially in this new year, uh, do you have a friend, a family member, a coworker, a neighbor that has expressed any interest at all in things of faith? Reach out to them and say, hey, you know, my pastor's starting this brand new series all about Jesus, and this might be an opportunity for you to get some of your questions answered. Bring them to church. But it's not just for unbelievers. It's not just for those who are seeking some knowledge about Jesus Christ. I think being reminded of the identity, the mission, and the meaning of Jesus is also very helpful for you and I because we often have Jesus fit snugly in a particular corner of our lives. 
and there he is, and we're very comfortable with where Jesus is. Friends, if Jesus does not regularly surprise you, if Jesus does not regularly alarm you or challenge you, I doubt that you are thinking clearly about the Jesus who is revealed to us in Scripture. His own disciples didn't understand him even after three years of daily life with him. His enemies underestimated him. The people of Israel loved him until they turned on him. He is the original world's most interesting man. As Christians, we need to come regularly face to face with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, your faith is not in a systematic theology. Your faith is not in a church or in a pastor. Your faith is not in your favorite preacher or theologian. Your faith is not in an ethical system. Your faith is in a person, Jesus. So if you are struggling this morning, you need to come back to Jesus. If you want to grow in your faith, if you want to be a mature Christian, you need to sit at the feet of Jesus. If you need comfort today, if you are seeking solace, you will find it in Jesus. We need to regularly return to the person and work of Jesus because salvation isn't found in any other person, any other place any other thing. In verse 1 of Mark's gospel, Mark introduces us to the identity of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Friends, this description of Jesus is what makes John's gospel truly good news. You ever think about what a gospel is? Some of you know, some of you have studied the scriptures deeply and widely, and you know when we speak about a gospel what we're talking about. A gospel is a genre, a literary genre, in and of itself. It doesn't belong to anything else. You won't find gospels outside of the Bible. They're more than just a biography. This is more than just telling us who Jesus is or what his family was like or the things that he did during his life. A gospel has actual proclamation at its heart. It's telling true things, historical things, and yet the point of telling those things isn't merely to convey information about what they're talking about. It's to convince you. It's to draw you in. It's to help you put your faith and trust and hope in the person that they are talking about. Who is the person that Mark is talking about? It's Jesus. And this Jesus has a real history. We read in verse 9 that he comes from Nazareth in Galilee. Friends, Jesus is a historical figure. You may not believe his claims that he was God incarnate, but no reasonable scholar today disputes his existence. In fact, one of the most of vociferous scholars against the claims of Christianity, a New Testament scholar back east by the name of Bart Ehrman, 
he says that there is ample evidence, more evidence than almost you can count that there was this person that he thinks is relatively accurately described by the Bible. He just dismisses the miraculous. He dismisses Jesus' claims of divinity. He thinks that the church built up a lot of these stories after Jesus' life. But he says you can't escape that there was a Jesus of Nazareth who was an important figure in the ancient Near East at this point in the world's history. This person has a history. But Mark is telling us more than than he has a history. He's also telling us that he has a task. And we get that idea of a task from the title that Mark uses for him. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. In verses 2 and 3... Mark quotes from the Old Testament prophets Malachi and Isaiah. And he says that John the Baptist was a messenger who was sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord. Why is this important? You need to understand that Jesus was not plan B. Jesus was not an afterthought. His coming has been planned and prepared for during the long years of the Old Testament. Jesus has a history. Jesus has a task. And by using the descriptor there in verse 1, Son of God, Mark is also telling us that Jesus has a purpose. A history, a task, and a purpose. Now, this purpose is closely related to verse 4. John's announcement of repentance, his message of repentance. Repentance is really the only appropriate response for the people of God at this moment in history. Like every generation of God's people, the people of Israel had broken God's covenant. And John, as God's prophet, is sent, and you've heard me say this before, as sort of a prosecuting attorney who is sent to read out the charges against God's people. But the twist is this. At the moment of their greatest need, God himself is coming to rescue his people. This is why Jesus is mightier than John. Did you notice that in verse 7? He preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. What makes Jesus mightier than John? After all, John was one of the greatest men that ever lived. Jesus told his disciples that in the Gospel of Matthew. Even though John appears here in the New Testament, we need to think of John in the same way that we think of Moses and Elijah, Abraham, and David. He is an Old Testament figure that has been held over to the initial parts of the New Testament, and his greatness extends to the point that he points to Jesus. He is pointing to Jesus as the hope, as the coming king. 
Jesus is mightier than John because Jesus is God in the flesh. And that means that he can do things that not even John, as great as he was, could do. John could baptize people because they recognized that they were sinful. They recognized that they needed to make a new commitment to the Lord. Jesus can transform people. Jesus transforms people by the very Spirit of God. That's what John means in verse 8 when he says that Jesus will baptize you by the Holy Spirit. Some of us have spent time in Pentecostal and charismatic churches where the baptism of the Holy Spirit was some secondary thing that was held out to really mature or passionate believers. Jesus actually shows that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens when you are saved, when you are regenerated, when you put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is given to you as a down payment of your salvation and begins that work of transformation in you, turning your heart back toward God. What the people longed for was a change. They saw around them, they saw within them that something was wrong. That's what John is pointing out as God's prophet Well, all of that's going to be accomplished by the God who walks on the earth in the midst of his people. Now, this is so radically important. How can we be confident that Jesus is who Mark says he is? How can we be confident that Jesus is who John points him out to be? Well, heaven itself bears witness to Jesus' identity. Look at verse 11. After Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. After Jesus is baptized, the, the veil between heaven and earth is ripped open. The Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, empowering him for the ministry that he's about to undertake, his long journey toward death. And Jesus hears the Father's voice. And it's a voice of approval and assurance that Jesus is the beloved Son. Do you notice that he's not just God's Son? No, he is the one who is loved by God. He is the one in whom God is well pleased. That's Jesus' identity. We get a sense of Jesus' mission by seeing where Jesus begins his ministry. Go back to verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus comes to be baptized by John, not for his own sins, because we know that he is the spotless Lamb of God. But he comes to be baptized by John as a public acknowledgement that he will stand with sinners. 
He comes to be baptized by John as a public acknowledgement that he will stand with sinners. There in the Jordan River, these penitent Jews would come and symbolically wash away their sins. By standing in that same river, Jesus allows that polluted water, polluted by sin, to wash over his perfect being. Friends, Jesus doesn't stand on the bank of the Jordan River telling you where to get in. He actually goes down. He goes down into the water. He descends to the place of need. He has come down in his incarnation. He has come down by taking on the form of a servant. He has gone down into the river. He will go down into the grave. He has become like us so that he can bring salvation to us. Jesus is with sinners. This is the heart of his mission. The identity of Jesus. The mission of Jesus. What's the meaning of it all? Two things. First, this is a story about a king. Jesus is the king. You see, friends, as soon as Mark's readers would have heard those words of Isaiah in verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, as soon as they heard those words, they would have understood that this was not a biography about any common person. No, this was a story about the king, God's kingdom as it had existed in Eden, had been destroyed. The freedom and the glory of it was lost, locked behind angels with swords because of Adam and Eve's cosmic rebellion against God. And even though there were shadows of this kingdom, models of this kingdom that were seen down throughout history in the family of Abraham there with Noah on the ark, finally and more perfectly in the kingdom of David and his sons there in Israel. It was never what it was supposed to be. In fact, there was always a need for a better king. A king who would undo the damage of our sin and rebellion. But eventually, Israel is hauled off into exile. And even after they come back, there's, there's no king. There's a puppet who's on the throne. His name is Herod. But he descends from the Edomites, from Esau. How can he be our king? Where is David? And where is David's greater son? Eventually, the depth of the brokenness and enslavement became so significant that Undoubtedly, people began to ask, can any king handle this? Will God send anyone to our rescue? And then Isaiah prophesies, prepare the way of the Lord. And later in Isaiah chapter 40, go read that this afternoon. Later in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah says, behold, the Lord God comes with might. 
and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah is saying that only the creator, only the creator himself can put back together all of the brokenness and sadness. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the king. And he's not just the king of a group of Israelites in the ancient Near East. Friends, this message applies to you and me too. We need a king. Oh, I know, I know. I think most of us think that we just need more freedom. We need more rights. We need more self-expression. We need more opportunities to be true to our authentic self. But folks, our pursuit of those ideals only leads us further and further into bondage. You and I need a king. And Mark introduces us to him. But here's the second thing. We need a king. But that king isn't found where we thought he would be. He isn't in the places of power, surrounded by important people, inaccessible to you and me. No. Our king? He's with sinners. Friends, do you understand the implication? We don't find Jesus. He finds us. We don't ascend to the king. He has already descended to us. He has come down. He has gone down into the river of sin and sorrow, of death and despair. He has identified himself with us. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 51 that he was numbered with the transgressors. That's why when we stand here on a Sunday and I pour water over someone's head, we are publicly identified with Jesus. We are baptized into Christ. Folks, Jesus' baptism is different than John's baptism. John's baptism is a commitment by that person to say, I am a sinner. I want to walk in a new way. I want to prepare myself for the coming of the Messiah. Jesus' baptism is not a symbol of his need to repent. It is not a commitment of, to live the way that God calls him to live. Jesus' baptism is God's work for Jesus. If you go back and you read this from verse 12 and 13, God is the active agent in Jesus' baptism. He is the one who is empowering Jesus with the Holy Spirit for his earthly ministry. He is the one who is anointing him as Christ, a new high priest to mediate God's love and justice to his people. He is the one who testifies to his son and everyone else who can hear 
who Jesus actually is. And folks, this is the baptism that we share with Christ when we are baptized. It doesn't matter if I'm holding an infant or if I'm pouring the water over an older child or an adult. There is only one baptism that continues to flow down the ages, and it is Jesus' baptism. We share in the waters that rolled down his head back into the Jordan River. And having been baptized into Christ, Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that we have put on Christ and that we share in his death and resurrection, Romans chapter 6 tells us. And we are united in one body by the same Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 says. Friends, because you have been baptized into Christ, you also hear the same words of approval that God gave to Jesus. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God. Yes, even you ladies, you've heard me say this before. You get to be sons and your brothers in Christ get to be a bride. We are all sons of God through faith, Paul says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are a beloved son of God. You are the one for whom there are no boundaries to God's love for you. You are the one who receives the inheritance promised because of what Christ accomplished for us. This is the beginning, the beginning of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, one of the contexts in which the word gospel was used was of a messenger running in from the battlefield with news of victory that would send a city into joy and rejoicing. Friends, that's what this gospel is for you and me. It is a message of God's victory. Look beyond yourself this morning and trust in that victory. The one who stands with you is the one who will transform you. And he is coming again. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this journey, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus. Not just for those here this morning who are struggling to understand what they believe about Jesus, but even those of us who have walked with Jesus for many years, who call ourselves by his name, and yet often find ourselves flummoxed and confused, dangerously apathetic hard-hearted, and sad. Father, bring us back to Jesus. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.